July has been a rainy July. We've had a lot of, uh, a lot of interesting situations. Um, but we are going to have lunch today uh, after service. We do have tables and chairs set up downstairs. And I think it's, it's pretty much um, stopped for right now outside. We did get the tent set up, right? Did we get it set up or is it still? All right, if it's not raining, it will be up. Um, if not, there's plenty of seating inside to be able to sit and and um, and we'll have uh, we'll have a, a lunch together, enjoy uh, one another's company. Um, this morning, getting ready for the service, uh, we we had all kinds of interesting technical issues, um, so we don't have anybody joining us online uh, right now. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna post a video uh, later today uh, on the service, um, so I don't need to say hi to anybody that's that's at home just yet. Um, but uh, we are. We're looking at uh, getting everything running again in September. I know there's a lot of uh, a lot of planning going on behind the scenes, um, and so we are. Uh, there's stuff in the in the back of the bulletin. You can take a look at at uh, the opportunities that are available there. Um, we're in the midst of also trying to catch up on all the things that we have. Um, we've kind of um, dropped by the wayside as we were. As we went through COVID in the last uh, year and change, um, we just kind of put a lot of projects aside and just said we, we, we won't deal with that right now. Um, and so trying to get things kind of restarted and, and rebooted and rerunning for September. Um, so hopefully we'll have some announcements coming along the lines of what's going on in various different aspects of ministry. Um, but other than that, there's not a whole lot um, that we need to go over uh, and so I want to I want to get into I want to get into the book of James um, as and we're going to kind of get into a very short passage of scripture uh, just in chapter five, but really uh, kind of bringing us back through. We're we're almost done with the book, and I just want to kind of go back over it, get a get our add a little bit to maybe your study of of uh, the epistle of James. And so let's go ahead and have a word of prayer, and we're going to get right into James chapter five. Father, as we again turn our, our eyes to, to Jesus, uh, Lord, as we have gathered and sung and, and, and given and participated in uh, the Lord's table, uh, Lord, we are, we are looking to turn our, our focus to you. Uh, we are not just uh, here to do a good thing, um, but to do um, what we were commanded to do, to assemble together, to encourage one another, to provoke one another to good works. And to look into um, the scriptures and see Christ uh, and the life that he has called us to live. The mission he has uh, given us as the church. We pray that uh, we would um, hear from you this morning. That these written words on the page would reveal to us uh, the living word, Jesus. We pray all of this in your precious and holy name. Amen. So... We're going to be in James chapter 5, and like I said, we are almost done uh, with the epistle of, epistle of James, and then we're going to um, spend August, we're going to finish up James next week, and then we're going to spend August uh, with Jude, um, and, uh, and kind of go through and, and hit some points in his, in his letter. Um, and, and the reason that these two are paired together uh, is, is because they're often um, these, these general epistles, Hebrew, James, Hebrews, James, First and Second Peter, uh, the three letters of John and Jude. Uh, the three letters of John get a lot of attention. First and Second Peter tend to get a lot of attention. Um, Jude, if he's lucky, gets a week, 
a weekday Bible study. Um, it's very rare for Jude to be preached on because um, Jude is a weird book. I'm just going to tell you right now, there's a lot of wackiness in, in the, the epistle of Jude. Um, and there's a very good reason for that. We'll talk about that in August. But James has so much practical wisdom for a church under pressure. And the real issue, that the real thing that James does for us is he kind of gives us a perspective on, on where we are as a church. Um, and and I want to remind you of, of where we started with this, that James is talking to a church that is going through a period not of uh, like overt institutionalized oppression. It's not like the government is out to get them at this point. But rather, James is dealing with a, a very low-level but intense um, a, uh, oppression by the Jerusalem elite. Um, the, and, and I'm very careful to say that, Jerusalem elite and not the Jews. People tend to interpret, um, they, they want to talk about the Jews as a broad category. And the reason I bring this up is, is in the course of this, this week, as, as I was doing um, just some, some other reading, there was... A lot of conversation, there was an article that came out uh, this week about the whitewashing of the Bible um, and how modern translators are trying to get rid of the anti-Semitism in the Bible. And I'm scratching my head on that since literally every single author of every single book in the Bible was a Jew. So I'm, I'm not sure I understand the whole concept of the Bible being anti-Semitic, but... There was a lot of, especially in the 20th century, the 19th and 20th century, there were a lot of very anti-Semitic interpretations of the Bible. You may have heard of one or two of them. Um, you know, the Nationalist Church in Germany was well known for an anti-Semitic interpretation of the Bible. Um, and and there are, there's a lot of that that goes on. And... and the, this is not about the Christians and the Jews. And I want, I want to kind of parse a little line for us to understand that when James is being written, that distinction of Christian and Jew was a very blurry line. All right. The, the, the Christians were not yet a distinct group. They, they eventually would become a very distinct group from the Jews. But at this time, James is still very much um, and Paul is still very much a Torah observant Jew who believes that the Messiah has come. Um, so what they're dealing with is not oppression necessarily from the, the Jews are picking on them or the Romans are picking on them, but rather the elite. And Jerusalem's, uh, the, the, the power, the authority structure in Jerusalem was vested in a group you may have heard of, the Sadducees. The Sadducees ran the priesthood and they ran Jerusalem and Judea. They were, they were a powerful, wealthy contingent that's going to be important in james as we get this next passage remember they were a wealthy powerful contingent of judaism and they were the ones behind what amounts to the manipulation of the evidence that leads to paul or saul at the time who was a pharisee not a sadducee being involved in the persecution of the church in the book of acts um, so this this Jerusalem elite within Judaism was very opposed to this Messiah thing for a very simple reason. They were in bed with the Roman Empire, very much so. And so if a Messiah arises 
And the Jewish people have a different identity other than the one that they are projecting for them. Guess what happens? They lose power. They lose authority. And so there's a very real physical, financial, economic struggle going on between this powerful elite and this group of lunatics who believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. And, and that is the backdrop of what James is writing about. And, and I think it's significant that we understand that when we get into passages that James begins to deal with. Now, it's also important, and this is a side tangent, but it's an important one. It is also important that when we read the Bible and we read specifically books about the Bible, interpretation of the Bible, we need to understand that interpreters are not free of bias. Now, what does that mean? Um, if you have read magazines, Time magazine, does Life magazine still exist? I don't even know if it does. This is how much I pay attention to magazines. Um, around Easter and Christmas, you'll always have these stories about the historical Jesus, right? There's always, who was Jesus? What did he really, you know, what did he really teach? You know, all of this stuff. So much of the, that scholarship um, emerged from the 1960s. Now, those of you that lived in the 1960s, um, very peaceful, conservative period of time. Um, amongst the academic elites in the 1960s, it was very, very popular to be against the man, right? Tune in, drop out kind of mentality, right? The man is out to get you, dealing with all this oppression. It should sound familiar because it, it does. It's always interesting to me that the people who are always telling the common people to reject the man generally are the man. Um, and, uh, and, and out of that emerged an American interpretation, a Western interpretation of Jesus, that Jesus was fighting the man, that he was, he was opposed to the institution, man. Jesus was like a long haired hippie, just wanted everybody to love one another. He's fighting the man. That interpretation comes from the mid 20th century. No one believed that before then. Jesus got framed as this hippie. Um, who was opposed, basically a, a Green Party socialist who was opposed to, you know, the man, the Roman man. And that interpretation often, the interpretation of the Bible says more about the person interpreting the Bible than what the Bible actually says. So we always have to be cautious. Right? Should it surprise us at all that when somebody wants an incredibly strong authority structure in the church, that's what they find in the Bible? Um, should we be all surprised that when somebody wants to, okay, justify their sin, that's what they find in the Bible. So we have to always be cautious when we interpret the Bible. And that's, that's really where I'm kind of going with this, the anti-Semitism thing and all this conversation. I just want you to be aware that when we read books about the scriptures, often we are, we need to be aware of the person that's writing the book. And, and when we read the book of James, we need to be very cautious about reading what he's writing and reading into it our modern context. There are analogies, but it's not the same. Now, why go through this big, long, elaborate conversation? Because James is about to talk about rich people. And we're, those of us that have been alive for the last decade, which is most of us, 
remember, you know, all the protests and the one percenters and all of this stuff and all the, the, the rich white guys are out to get us and all those things. It's very easy to read what James is saying and interpret it in light of our own context. And, and there are people right now in academia writing theologies and writing interpretations of the Bible that are informed by those. There's post-colonial theology. There's um, liberation theology. There's all these various and assorted theologies that are going back and interpreting the Bible based on what's going on right now. We have to be cautious about that. So I bring up that Sadducee, wealthy, powerful elite just as a setup for what's going on. So James chapter 5 and verse 1, James opens with the same phrase that he opens chapter 4 and verse 13 with, come now. So these are tied together. Verse 13, chapter 4 and verse 13, he was dealing with the people who say, we're going to go into a town and spend a year and trade and make profit. All right. And he says, why are you wasting time doing that? Do what God has given you now. Do, do God's will now. But now in verse, chapter 5 and verse 1, he begins with, come now, you rich. Now the word rich means the same thing in Greek that it does in English. It means being rich. There's nothing specific there. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. He clearly has a strong opinion. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Now, read without context, would that not sound like an argument against our modern capitalist system? Oh, the rich people, they're... But I want you to think about what James is dealing with. We know from the book of Acts that there were a number of converts from the priesthood, Sadducees, who, who were uh, taking Jesus as their Messiah, but really struggling with what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. We know of two people in the book of Acts, Ananias and Sapphira, who were wealthy and yet could not grasp the concept of actually um, like parting with their wealth and being honest about it in front of the church. And you can read about that in, the, in Acts. Um, there were issues within the church of people who had accumulated wealth but didn't know what to do with it. Now, I, I ran one of those reports that you're never supposed to run um, about retirement. You know, How much money should I have saved to retire? And then realized... I can retire at 173. I'm supposed to have like $3.2 million saved or something. Something absolutely ludicrous. I'm trying to adjust for cost of living and all of those things. And, and um, you know, uh, I am 0.001% of the way there. But James here is dealing with not just 
the wealthy, but the powerful. And he's he's diving into a well of interpretation that I think we need to to get um, kind of get our heads around. Look at what James says here. He's very specific. Extremely specific, right? In verse 2, your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Does that sound familiar? Take a look at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6 and verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. James is quoting Jesus. James is doing what's known as Midrash. So so Midrash is a Jewish way of interpreting where you take scripture and you apply it to a particular situation. It's basically an application method of interpretation. James is treating Jesus on level with scripture. Now that has a lot of implications for our understanding of the Bible and the sayings of Jesus in Matthew. I won't get into all of it, but it basically blows modern uh, modern scholarship about what Jesus said and didn't say and when the gospel was written blows it out of the water. Because we know that James was written. It's one of, if not the first book written in the New Testament. And supposedly Matthew didn't get written until like 30 years later. Now James, for obvious reasons, would be familiar with Jesus' sayings. All right? Um... Because he's Jesus' half-brother. But he's alluding very specifically to the Sermon on the Mount. Where Jesus says, don't accumulate wealth here because it's going to be destroyed. The moth's going to eat it. It's going to get corrupted. It's going to be... Well, what is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about that rich, ruling elite. Who are acquiring riches and power and wealth. And he says, but what does that do for you? What does that accomplish? It's not, and and it's important that we understand this, it is not about the money itself. It's not about the acquisition of the funds or being successful. He's talking about the attitude toward it. He says, everything that you accumulate, your riches are going to rot, your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are going to be corroded. Now, anyone who knows anything about precious metals... Gold doesn't corrode. That's why they use it in spaceships. It doesn't, it doesn't get, it doesn't oxidize, it doesn't rust. It's gold. That's why it gets used in fillings. That's why my grill looks so awesome. You know, gold, gold is, uh, gold is completely inert. It doesn't interact with anything. And so, so this idea that gold would be corroded, he's not talking about the metal being corroded, but rather the possession of it and the corruption that it makes in the heart. 
Because remember that James is dealing with the church where people are looking at these rich and powerful, wealthy people and saying, here, you get the best seat. You you get to sit where in the place of honor. We'll push all the poor people get in the back. We're pushing all the poor people down. But you let's make you lift you up. And 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 James is dealing with the church that's struggling with this issue of this inequality. And he's saying this corrupts. It destroys And then he issues a, a very, very um, strong warning to them. Now, I, I, I thought about this and I haven't had the time to go back and do it. But when I, I kind of went back in James and saw like bits and pieces. And if you do it, you will see it as well. James actually uses a lot of farming illustrations. It had not occurred to me until I was reading this passage, but he talks about the harvest of righteousness. He talks about all good gifts from the come down from the Father above the description of rain falling as a blessing. He he uses a lot of like farm analogies, which which makes sense because James grew up in Galilee, and Galilee is basically a lake, one city, and farms. That's like all it is, um, and so. So he he very obviously is trying to get this, but then he says he looks at these people and it's important that we understand the qualification of the riches that he's talking about. In verse four, he describes them as people who lie to those who work for them. And everybody's going, well, that's my boss. Right. They're defrauding. They're defrauding their laborers. Um, the wages of the laborer in the field. Does that sound familiar? How many times does Jesus make illustrations about the laborers in the field, about the people working in the vineyards? In fact, he tells one parable about how a a vineyard owner summoned a bunch of workers at the beginning of the day, promised to pay them uh, one day's wages. And then the middle of the day, he brings another group. He promises them to pay one day's wage. And then he brings another group at night. And he says, I'll give you one day's wage. And he gives one group right at the end. He says, I'll give you one day's wage. And then the people come to him and they say, well, you know, you you should be paying us more because we worked all day and those people only worked at night. And he says, well, it's not your job to decide. I promised everybody what I promised them. I'm going to pay them what I promised I would pay them. He's a just landowner. Well, here, James is dealing with people who have acquired wealth through fraud, through betraying the trust of those who are working for them. And that the guilt, the fraud, look at the line that he uses and see if this sounds familiar. The wages of the laborer who mowed your field, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. Not the laborers. The wages are crying out against you. You think of any other moment in the Bible where something that was not a person cried out for the guilt of another person? When Cain killed Abel, God comes to Cain and he says, the blood of your brother cries out from the ground against you. That's a strong condemnation he's making there. He's saying, you, in, in, in defrauding your employees, you have committed the sin of Cain. 
Now remember who he's talking about. He's talking about the ruling elite in Jerusalem. The people who claim to have the Bible down. The people who claim to be the religious leaders. He is delivering an indictment against them. Now keep in mind these are people that are in the church. People who brought into the church basically the way they had been living their lives before, but they accepted Jesus as as Messiah, and now they're part of the church, and they're being given the preferred seat, and isn't this great, and who cares about the widows? James's church is a messy church. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ear of the Lord of hosts. book of exodus the lord of hosts hears the cries of the people of israel laboring under their slave masters i think james has a strong opinion he's just evoked cain and abel and the slavery in egypt look at this He gives us, now in, in English it's not quite as easy to break down, but he actually uses, he uses four verbs here, and they're alliterated. They all, uh, they all, have, they all start with the letter E, um, and they end with, um, they, so it kind of rhymes, and uh, I'm not going to get into all of the details, but he says in verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury. That's one verb, all right? You have lived in luxury on the earth. That's actually how it, you have luxuriated on the earth. Uh, literally off of the earth, like you have you have acquired from the earth luxury. All right, that that's what's the verb there. And in self indulgence, you have fattened your heart in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. That's the only one that doesn't start with an e in Greek. It starts with a a k. And murdered the righteous person. He does not, or he did not resist you. Now just take verse six. By itself. Who does that sound like? You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. And he does not resist you. Jesus. Now I'm not saying that he's directly saying. These people are physically responsible for the death of Jesus. But he is saying. Basically setting the conversation in this argument of saying. What makes you different from the other Sadducees and members of the ruling elite who actually crucified Jesus? Now, as if that weren't enough, he's also riffing off of the words of Jesus. Because in Matthew chapter 12, again, Matthew, and there's an interesting relationship between James and Matthew that I haven't really gotten into, um, but in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, um, he says this, I tell you someone, I tell you something or someone, this is verse six, I tell you something uh, or someone greater than the temple is here. Jesus is talking about himself. And if you had known what this means, and he quotes the Old Testament, I desire mercy and sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless for the son of the son of man as the Lord of Sabbath. Um, in other words, he's saying it's a trend. It's a trend among these people that he's dealing with. It's a trend to condemn the righteous 
And while the big moment of that is the condemnation of Jesus, on a regular basis, the process of these people that he's addressing specifically, their issue was that they were luxuriating off of the earth while those who worked the earth, the farmers and the harvesters, were being robbed and stolen. And God was hearing the voice of of that which was being stolen from them and hearing their voice. They're luxuriating so that they can indulge in their own selfish desires. They're fattening their hearts um, in the day of slaughter. Um, again, that may be an allusion to Jesus in the parable uh, of the of the farmer who tore down his uh, silos to build uh, better ones and every he lost everything on the day of slaughter. It may be an allusion to that. You've condemned and murdered the righteous one. Uh, the Greek word is literally the one who is righteous, the person. It's one word, um, the righteous one. Um, and, and he does not resist you. I mean, that basically, I mean, I don't know how that isn't Jesus, righteous person who doesn't resist, and those who follow Christ. In other words, this particular segment of James's church is completely and utterly, and I'm about to swerve you, out of balance. Their crime is not being rich. The crime is the way they became rich and the way they lived their lives. Because their wealth was acquired and built not on honoring God, but on dishonoring their fellow human beings. James is not, again, and I I, I keep bringing this up, but I want to make it clear, James is not condemning money or riches in general so often it's like christianity we tend to kind of get this message and it's it's really evolved from the 20th century keep them humble keep them poor you know and we misquote jesus when he talks about a rich man passing through the eye of the needle a camel passing through the eye of the needle and the rich young ruler and everybody's like jesus was opposed to rich people i got news for you jesus was financed by rich women the early church was full of people who had great uh, possessions barnabas is one Uh, paul could not have done what paul did without wealthy people he collects he he collects offerings from the wealthy in asia minor to take care of jerusalem during a famine This is not a condemnation of wealth. It's a condemnation of a way of living life that is completely and utterly out of balance and abuses other people for our own self-indulgence. Because if you look at it and you put this passage in context, it would be really weird if James was just saying, all Christians should be poor. That's not what he's saying. But rather, he is building, and we can kind of look back on chapter 4. Um, you can kind of look at the actually the end of chapter 3, where he starts to talk about the wisdom from above. He is He's saying, so here's the wisdom from the above, and here's the friendship with the worldliness, and the friendship with worldliness leads us to the wrong ambitions and the wrong description of what is God's will. And before too long, the world is upside down, and we are consuming other people's lives and livelihood for our own benefit. Do you see how James is doing that? I encourage you to go back and read James and watch the progress of what he says. The progression of how he's getting to this point. 
Um, Martin Luther called James a, a straw epistle. A number of commentators that I have read have talked about how James is not as theologically and rhetorically sound as the Apostle Paul. He doesn't really, he, he writes in kind of a, a, a rough way. And I would conjecture that they are reading into James what they want to see from James. Because James is supposed to be the primitive church, so James must be a primitive style. And in reality, you see, if you go back and read, now that you see, now that I've said that, you go back and read James and you see how masterfully he has flipped this on its head and brought people from an attitude of self-righteousness all the way to a position of conviction. And then he opens with verse 7, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover verse 7 in the end of the, the passage next week. But I want you to see what he says in verse, the beginning of verse 7. He says, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. Why are you in such a hurry? Why are we in such a hurry to acquire, to consume, to have? And, and this is a specific message to a specific group, but it has repercussions for all of us. We, we especially in our modern day and age, we believe in immediate change. And I'm not just talking about the fact that when you're on, you order something from Amazon and it has Prime tagged on it, but then it doesn't get delivered the next day. You sit there going, how can I live without this? And I find myself falling in that, that, that tree. I just gotten so used to, I ordered it in Amazon early in the morning and it's here the next day. Sometimes the same day. I still, I think they've invented teleportation. I don't know how it happens. You know, and the irony of it is I could have just driven to the store and picked it up myself, but it was so much easier to just press buy now. And, and I'm not even talking about that, but you're in a conflict with somebody and, and you decide, you know, your, your, your spouse or whatever, your children, you decide to go to a counselor and you walk into the counselor's office. And the first thing we want, we want to have one conversation with this counselor because they're expensive. You want to have one conversation, fix all the problems and be done. It's like, well, that didn't accomplish anything. I didn't feel like we didn't do anything. Can you imagine the guys building the Eiffel Tower? At the end of the day going, well, that didn't do nothing. Now, I don't know if you know how the Eiffel Tower is built. Everybody knows what the Eiffel Tower is, right? This thing. You ever, you ever look at the Eiffel Tower and go, how did they get that up? Because the Eiffel Tower is held together by its first platform, but you can't put the first platform on until you build the legs. So how on earth did that get up? If you don't know, what actually happened was they built giant sandboxes. And as the metal went up, they kept building the sandbox up, 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 up on the legs. And down on the bottom of the legs, they had outlets to let the sand out. And the engineer, whose name, surprisingly, was Eiffel, um, he, that's why it's named that, they would let the sand out slowly to tilt those legs in. And then when they got it to the right angle, they went up there, brave Frenchmen, went up there and built the platform, and then they let the rest of the sand out and the legs were holding up. You can't build the Eiffel Tower the way that it stands 
You had to build it. Can you imagine those workers coming? Oh, it was terrible. Sand everywhere. We are never going to build this stupid thing. This crazy Eiffel. He don't know what he's doing. You know, it, it, it days and days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months of not being able to see it. And Eiffel saying to his supervisors, trust me, when I is done, everyone will look at Paris and go, there it is. And everybody say, no, they say this about Notre Dame. No, this is Eiffel Tower. And it's iron, will not burn. You know, um, there, all these all these conversations are going on. You, 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 but every day they're looking at it going, this, this insanity, it's not going to go up. It's not going to be done. How is this ever going to be finished? And, and when we read James, he says we're in such a rush to acquire and to accumulate that if we're not careful, we get into a, a position where we're actually abusing people around us for our own purposes. We're luxuriating off of the earth instead of letting the earth grow the way that God created it. We're in a hurry to have whatever it is we want. Maybe it's spiritual peace. Maybe it's financial stability. Maybe it's, you know, your spouse being the spouse that you expect them to be. Maybe it's, it's, it's dealing with grief. I don't, I don't know about you, but, but I, my observation in life has been that when people get hit with a really, really terrible tragedy, they don't just like heal the next day. Now, they might come and go, well, dealt with that. But that's not really how it works. There's a, there's a long period and process. And we want to rush through everything to get where we want to be. I've done it. You've done it. We're like, quick fix, let's move on. And the reality, surgeons don't use band-aids to fix heart problems. The quick fix doesn't, isn't the deep fix. And these, these rich people thought that their money would just build more money, build more influence, this is the way it goes. And in reality, what Paul is pointing out, or what James is pointing out, is that sometimes it's not about what you've got and what you can accumulate at all costs. The process matters. James is grounded. Now, he's using ag- agrarian illustrations, so he's literally grounded. But James is grounded in the idea that the situation the church is going through, there may not be a quick answer. There may not be a bolt of lightning. There may not be a, a, a instantaneous transition. Now, James, and this is another crazy thing, but James knows Paul. We're all familiar with Paul, right? So Paul persecuted the church. He's on the road to Damascus. God appears to him. He falls off the donkey and he immediately becomes an apostle. That is not what happened. Paul goes through a very long process of growing into the apostle Paul. Saul of Tarsus does not instantly become Paul, the apostle Paul. It takes years. He goes into the wilderness. He has to sit and listen to the apostles at one point. He, 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 it's a struggle for him to mature. Because things happen at the pace that God sets them for. Now one little piece of what he's saying. Who set the time frame for the fruit to grow for the farmer? That goes all the way back to Genesis. When God says to man, I've created this. There are seasons. All right, They mark Everything you need to watch the rhythm of the world. You can't force it. 
You, you can't make it do what you want it to do. And, and we go through life. We're, we're doing it right now. Our entire global society somehow has convinced themselves that we can bend every aspect of nature, including viruses, to our own will. And on both sides of the corona thing, that's it. We got some people who think that somehow the Chinese managed to engineer a virus. And on the other side, I don't mean to offend anybody, but I don't want to offend everybody. Um, one side you got this group that's like, oh, the malicious Chinese, they developed a virus and they released it on their own people to infect everybody. And then on the other side, you got people going, we have mastered viruses altogether. We have no, no need to fear sickness ever, ever again. In the middle are the rest of us going. The reality is nature has a rhythm. Nature has a rhyme. Human existence has a rhythm, has a rhyme. Your Christianity, your path with Christ, it has a, it has a pattern that God is setting. And, and it's a cycle and it's, it's moving. I know I'm going to get emails about that Corona thing. It's just an illustration, people. Extremes. Um, this everything about nature. So rather than us being in a hurry trying to push uh, into God's time frame or being passive on the other side, we have to get into a rhythm with God's creation. I worked on farms. I spent months working on farms, doing back-breaking, horrible things, waiting for corn to grow. And you know what? Jim, the guy that owned the farm that I worked on, I worked on two farms, one owned by a guy named Fred, another guy named Jim, because I lived in New Jersey. And most people don't realize that New Jersey has a garden state name for a reason. And, um, and now Fred, Fred was a, a Christmas tree farmer. Now that's a long-term investment. Jim uh, had peach orchards and corn and a bunch of other vegetables that I don't remember and don't care about because I hated both peaches and corn. Picking corn at five in the morning means you have to wear rain gear because it's covered in dew and it's, you know, that tall. And peaches are just the worst thing in the world to pick. They're terrible. That fuzz gets everywhere, gets in your pores. Um, So anyway... When you work on either one of those farms, you can't rush the harvest. Nothing you do is going to change the speed at which a plant grows. Now, I know we can manipulate and genetically modify and all that stuff. But the reality is plants grow at the speed that they grow at. If we could get corn to grow at the speed of the weeds in my yard. But we can't. So be patient. The sin that James is addressing is the sin. It's slowly tilted people out of kilter with the reality of what God was doing until they were consuming other people. And we as Christians, we've got to tilt the balance back and accept that gifts come from the one above, the Father. All good gifts descend from the Father of lights. And we've got to get into the rhythm of of creation. My daughter and I, we were talking to my daughter about personal evangelism classes when I was in college. It's the last illustration, I swear. I was in college. We were doing, I think it was 12 steps, right, Nicole? 14 steps? 13 steps? All right, I don't know. There were a bunch of steps. 
Um, and, it, and one of the things about personal evangelism in the college I was trained in, if you, you're unfamiliar with this motif, um, this is very much a Bible Belt kind of thing that had been transplanted to the Bible college I went to. Um, were you, did they have personal evangelism when you started, Tom? The golden path to soul winning. Yes, yes. Well, you get graded on if you got the steps correct. You know, those of you that know me know that I am incapable of doing things 1 to 12. I have to like 1, 6, 3, 4. Um, so I lost points on this class. But anyway, um, the golden steps of personal soul winning. Basically, the idea was you, you knock on people's door and they open the door and you say, I'd like to tell you about Jesus. If they say no, you stick your foot in the door. Um, and you keep telling them about Jesus. At one point, one of the practical skills that was given to us was the idea that if you were in... First of all, there should be a lot wrong with this scenario you're about to hear. If you're at a, woman, at a house and the housewife is there by herself with her kids and you're sitting in her living room talking to her about Jesus. Okay, red flag one. should never be in a house with... House, but, and her children start to be disruptive. It's recommended that you have your partner just take those children into another room. And we're telling the story to my daughter. Now, in 2021, we're going, red flag, red flag, red flag, red flag. You know, we're like, oh, it got better. You were supposed to answer their door or their phone. If their phone rang, now, those of you that don't remember that houses used to have phones in central areas, not one you carried in your pocket, if their phone rang, it's like, I'm going to get that for you and just answer the phone. So-and-so is busy right now. Can you call back later? Oh my word, right? I mean, this is, I'm not making this up, right? This, this was in, this was in the program, you know? And, and one of the things was, it was so, it was emphasized to us so often that it was so important that these people become believers, that they had to, they had to come to a moment of, of faith in Jesus, that, that it was okay for us to cross boundaries of decency, to, to cross boundaries of, of appropriateness, because what was so important was that they, at the end of it, pray a prayer with us and become believers in Jesus and then come to church. We have to have confidence in the Holy Spirit that we claim guides us and teaches us as has inspired the word and is in power in the world and let God do what God does. We cannot manipulate and, and adulterate and, and, and mess with a situation because the ends justify the means. We are not called to put a backside into every seat at Bedford Road. We are not called to count coup and have notches on how many people we've led to Jesus. We are called to be the church of Jesus Christ, to live out and preach the gospel and to see God do extraordinary things. And it's not about whether we're rich or we're poor. It's about the fact that we are part of what God is doing. Join me in a word of prayer. Creator God, you have made this world, this cycle, the movement and motion of our lives. And your Holy Spirit is the breath in our lungs, the voice in our mouths. He speaks from the word through us and sometimes despite us. Help us to be patient to prioritize 
your work, your field, to be laborers in your work and not accumulators of our own capacity and our own accomplishment. As you guide us on our path, Father, as you give us moments and opportunities to speak and to care and to give and to love, may we always be looking to you, the one who gives all the good gifts, and be operating as best we can on your timetable and your process. We pray this all in Jesus' name. My brothers and sisters.